That's a problem for the media that I, I don't have the answer to. Me neither. Me neither. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And that's just the terrestrial stations, streaming coast to coast and around the globe. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth. You can run, but you can't hide from the Bradcast as much as you might like to. I'm Brad Fried, as much as I might like to. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. I, I received a comment over on on Facebook, and you can find us at uh, Facebook or on the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Uh, Facebook, of course, is one of the many places that we post the broadcast each day after it airs. Got this comment from a longtime listener uh, and bradblog.com reader, Dale, who pleaded, uh, quote, no more Trumpage. Following yesterday's show, uh, in which we discussed in part uh, Trump's dangerous comments about uh, Second Amendment people. Uh, now, I, listen, I get it. I hear you. I'd love not to cover Donald Trump. I'd love to talk about anything else, frankly. And while we were able to do that, you know, a little bit easier, at least during the primary season, the man is now the Republican nominee for president of the United States. And uh, so, yeah, he has suckered all of the media, including us on occasion, I suppose, into covering his every tweet and burp and fart and idiocy. And uh, there are a lot of them. Time magazine has a cover story today offering an inside look at Donald Trump's supposed meltdown over the past two weeks since the uh, since the convention, uh, quoting uh, one of the uh, Clinton advisors, unnamed a senior Clinton advisor this way. Uh, they write at Clinton headquarters in Brooklyn, aides still nursing scars from skirmishes with Bernie Sanders marveled at their good fortune. As in all campaigns, researchers watch every public event, read every interview, archive every tweet, quote, on other campaigns, we would have to scrounge for crumbs, says a senior Clinton advisor here with Donald Trump. It's a fire hose. He can set himself on fire at breakfast, kill a nun at lunch and waterboard a puppy in the afternoon. And that doesn't even get us to prime time. So, 
Uh, <laughs> now we, you know, yes, that's what's happening. And I guess we don't have to cut. Why are you laughing, Des? I'm what, sorry. So? <laughs> waterboard a puppy? Is yes, yes. <laughs> so he calls for waterboarding a puppy. And what are you supposed to do? Not cover it? He's the candidate, the nominee for yes. president of the United and, and, States, And we for should Christ point sake. out that, yes, as, as journalists, that's what we are required to do. So, Well, we're not. Re- I mean, we, uh, we, you know, there's no rules, I suppose. We could do anything we want. But, you know, how do you not... Uh, cover this when you've got someone, you know, it's not that he's, he's saying dumb things or funny things or whatever. He's saying things that are dangerous, you know. So we talked about the Second Amendment comments yesterday that he made. And no sooner did we do that than he went out and called Barack Obama the founder of ISIS. And Hillary Clinton, the co-founder of ISIS. And one of the points that I made on yesterday's program uh, was that his 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 dog whistle about Second Amendment people taking care of the problem after Hillary is elected before she can appoint any, you know, just justices to the Supreme Court um, is that uh, it was something that has been defined as stochastic terrorism, meaning you don't know uh, it's not a direct call to action to, you know, commit violence. But if you put it out there and if you put it out there enough, someone is going to hear that uh, that, that that bell being rung. And someone is eventually potentially going to take action on it. So, uh, you know, and in the case here, why wouldn't they take action? After all, Hillary Clinton deserves to be in in jail. She needs to be locked up. She's a traitor to her country, according to Donald Trump and the Republican uh, uh, convention. And so, uh, right, you're only doing your patriotic duty if you take action to stop that, according to this uh, this thinking that he's putting out. And then he comes out and says Barack Obama is the founder of ISIS. You know, uh, you, obviously uh, the great enemy now that the world is facing ISIS and Barack Obama is the founder, apparently, says Donald Trump. And Hillary Clinton, she's a co-founder. So, you know, I I don't know how you I I really I really don't know how to cover this campaign. I don't know if anyone does. And we're not I'm not going to focus on those on those comments there. But I just wanted to sort of reply to this idea of, yeah, sure, we'd we'd love to not cover Donald Trump. And, you know, when it was when he was one of 17 and then 16 and 15, 14, 13, 12 uh, GOP candidates trying to vie for the nomination, we didn't have to cover every crazy and stupid thing. uh, And we still don't. But I think people need to know about it. I think people need to understand who it is they are voting for or against. And that included includes whether you're going to vote for or against Hillary Clinton. And why you might want or not want to do that to understand what the stakes are. And I'm not the only one who's having trouble (laughs) figuring out how to cover this. I mean, a lot of people in the corporate media, they don't care. They're just happy to, you know, this to them is clickbait. If people tune in, they're delighted. So they're happy to cover Donald Trump no matter what he says, no matter what he does. That's not why we cover him when we do cover him here. Um. But, uh, you know, so I don't speak for the for the rest of them. I don't certainly don't speak for the corporate media. But Brian Stelter, uh, CNN's media guy. And Des, you found this just before we went on air here. I wanted to talk about this today as is. And apparently, uh, I guess Brian Stelter is also thinking about this uh, over at CNN. He's CNN's media guy. And let me add, he's an excellent media guy. Yes, he's very good. 
Um, he's not the uh, who's that idiot who he replaced on uh, Howard uh, Howie uh, Howie Kurtz. Howie, the guy who he replaced, Howie Kurtz, who's now over at Fox News. Howard, Howard Kurtz used to do their, the CNN's media thing on Sunday, and he was horrible, and he still is horrible. He's a corporate right-wing loon. But in any case, Brian Stelter is quite good, and he was asking the same question. How the hell do you cover this campaign? Donald Trump says Barack Obama is the founder of ISIS. Now, on one level, that's a reference to foreign policy decisions by the Obama administration. On another level, that is a coded message suggesting the president of the United States is a traitor. That's what that is. It's a coded message. When we repeat that message and then we come on the air and we fact check it, some people just take away the idea that it's true. They just hear it and they believe it. In fact, it reinforces people's beliefs in some cases. That's a problem for the media that I, I don't have the answer to, even if we talked for an hour. I don't know what we do in those scenarios. What we're doing right now isn't working. Well, uh, what we're doing right now is 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 not working. I guess I don't know. I don't know what what the uh, what the bar is here for working or not working. Well, part of the problem is that you know fact checking. The the basis of fact checking is that you're supposed to feel some kind of shame for getting it wrong. You know, for for saying something mm-hmm. untruthful. It relies on the idea that politicians care about that sort of thing. And in a Trump world, that doesn't work anymore. That is not a norm that he follows at all. He has no shame. Well, listen, you can fact check him. And I know a lot of people have been calling to fact check him. And and, uh, And they have been. Yeah. And I'm not sure one one of the media outlets is actually running a a, a ticker below when he speaks to try to fact check and say, no, this is not true. Right. That's good. That's swell. But you know what that means still? Even if you do fact check him, even if you do say, no, this is this is true. This is not true. We're still not talking about the issues. We're still not talking about stuff that actually matters to our world and to our campaign and to the next uh, presidential administration, whoever is heading it up. The issues are not on the table, period, in this entire election. Yeah, it's sucking up all the oxygen. So, uh, you know, there's no issues. There's no substance. Now, by the way, that may be good uh, for for Democrats and for Hillary Clinton, as that Time magazine uh, cover story seems to argue, you know, to keep the focus on Donald Trump's idiocy and off of her. And, um, you know, so I understand the media. They are obsessed with every utterance of his. And I don't wish to be, but I'm not entirely sure what the alternative is. I don't know that ignoring him uh, is the answer. I really don't know. So I think I'm as confused as anyone on on how to cover this insanity, uh, which rarely has anything at all, anything at all to do with actual substance and issues. So listen, you got suggestions? I'll take them. Uh, Bradcast at bradblog.com. You know, I I always love hearing from uh, from listeners with ideas. But in any event, we do. We do try, at least, uh, when and if possible, to keep actual issues in focus, actual substance, when we can. And it isn't often possible, to be frank, but we, we will keep trying. And to that end, Desi, uh, you'll join us for a Green News report in a little bit. Yep. Uh, which does cover Trump and Hillary, but at least tries to focus on some substantive stuff and the substance of, of what they are saying uh, as I say, where and if possible. Uh, it, it also covers a whole bunch of other substantive stuff going on in the world in our uh, latest Green News report, including a federal court ruling that sets a 
what you describe as a major precedent for climate change accountability. Dun, dun, dun. There you go. Uh, as well, by the way, uh, industrial chemicals found in uh, the drinking water of six million Americans. You would think that would be an issue in the presidential campaign. What to do about it? It's not even on the radar, dude. It is so far off the radar. It's on Desi Doyen's radar, and thank <laughs> God for it, because uh, it ain't on uh, pretty much anybody else's. Also, we're going to be speaking momentarily with a, a guest from the Center for, Envi for International Environmental Law on their kind of mind-blowing investigation, finding that the fossil fuel industry... Uh, big Oil, specifically, Big Oil's campaign of denial has been going on much, much longer than most have thought, even longer than the 1970s, as has uh, recently been discovered uh, when Exxon scientists first were sounding the alarm, at least internally within the company, about the dangers of climate change and fossil fuels, uh, and then when Exxon started uh, spending millions to deceive the public about their own science, turns out all of this goes way much farther back than that even. So we'll discuss that with my guests shortly. So anyway, we're doing what we can here. It ain't easy. Uh, thanks for understanding as we try to figure out this uh, this nightmare right now right along with you. How to report on it, how to report on it honestly and 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 on the other stuff that matters without becoming too distracted by the noise. Uh, but but you know what? The noise is the campaign right now, Des. Uh, at this point, in truth, as much as I'd love to ignore that noise, uh, that's that noise is the campaign for president of the United States. And that campaign, whether we like it or not, whether it's full of noise or not, is damned important. Uh, at least in my opinion, it's not something that can be ignored. Uh, that said, uh, very quickly, before we get to my guest, let me just run through this because this came out uh, yesterday and we, we weren't able to get to it on yesterday's program, but I wanted to. Uh, Baltimore police officers routinely discriminate against blacks, repeatedly use excessive force and are not adequately held accountable for misconduct, according to a harshly critical Justice Department re uh, report released on Wednesday. Uh, as AP describes, the report is the culmination of a year-long investigation into one of the country's largest police forces. It represents a damning indictment of how the city's police officers carry out the fundamental of policing practices. The most fundamental of policing practices, including traffic stops and searches and responding to First Amendment expression. This uh, investigation by the feds was launched after the uh, April 2015 death of Freddie Gray, the 25-year-old black man whose neck was broken while he was handcuffed and shackled but left unrestrained in the back of a police van. And that death set off protests and the worst riots in Baltimore in decades. The report went way beyond the circumstances of uh, Freddie Gray's death, however, and examined a slew of potentially unconstitutional practices, including excessive force and discriminatory traffic stops within the department. It goes on and on. I'll give you just a couple of the items from this report. But let me underscore that this report would not have happened if not for those protests. This report... Uh, you know, and one of the problems, frankly, with this report is it sounds so much like all of these other reports 
uh, the uh, Department of Justice has done within the past uh, couple of years in Ferguson and in Cleveland and elsewhere. They find the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, you know, these terrible racially discriminatory practices uh, by the police. Every time they every time they take on one of these investigations, it seems like they say the same thing. And in any event, you know, were it not for the noise being made by the protesters, by the citizenry on the ground, by the Black Lives Matter movement, as much as they are maligned uh, in the media by folks on the right, um, they are doing uh, God's work. And frankly, I don't believe in God. But anyway, they are doing God's work uh, in, in, in sticking with it in uh, raising awareness uh, to these issues. It's got to be done. Among the findings in this report, black residents account for roughly 84% of police stops, even though they represent just 63% of the city's population. Likewise, African Americans make up 95% of the 410 people stopped at least 10 times by officers from 2010 to 2015. During the same time period, officers stopped 34 black residents 20 times, and seven African-Americans 30 times or more. While the report says that no individuals of any other race were stopped more than 12 times in that same period. One man who spoke to an investigator uh, said he was stopped 30 times, 30 times in less than four years. At least 15 of those stops, he said, were to check for outstanding warrants. And none of the stops actually resulted in charges. Um, there's so much in this report uh, and just uh, basically giving you the nice stuff here. In addition to pat downs, Baltimore officers performed unconstitutional public strip searches, public strip searches on the street, on the street of women, yep, men and women alike, uh, and, and including of searches of people who were not even under arrest, which is supposed to be illegal. 20% of force incidents reviewed by investigators involve someone who was not being arrested for a crime or who suffered from a mental health disability. Force is, force is often uh, used as a retaliatory tactic in instances where officers did not like what those individuals said. The Baltimore Police Department teaches uh, the use of these aggressive tactics. They fuel an us-versus-them mentality. We saw some officers display uh, toward community members alienating the civilians they are meant to serve. In one instance, a supervisor told a subordinate officer to just make something up. That's a quote. After the officer protested in order to stop and question a group of young black men for no reason whatsoever. In one incident in 2010, a man fled from an officer patrolling a high crime area. The officer proceeded to fire his stun gun at the running man's back. Striking him several times. That's illegal, by the way. You're not supposed to fire uh, after somebody running away. When the officer was able to detain the man, he frisked him but found no weapon. And the officer's report provides no reason to believe the man was armed. And again, I say that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much in this that is so much worse every time they peel the, the lid off of one of these uh, large police forces. They find the same thing. 
other than that, no worries. Racism is dead. Everything is fine in these United States, right? Because, you know, we've got a black president, so we're all done. Uh, amazing. Uh, keep up the good work, citizens. All right, when we come back, uh, Big Oil didn't borrow from Big Tobacco's playbook, according to a new investigation. In fact, Big Oil actually wrote that playbook. We'll explain right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Yeah, way back. Way, way, way back in time. That's where we got to go to tell this story. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Uh, as evidence mounts of the oil industry's decades-long campaign of climate deception and denial, Exxon and its allies assure us that oil is not the new tobacco. The 14 million documents at the Tobacco Archives, which is a project of the University of California. It's a website available to the public and litigants providing access to millions of pages of tobacco company documents produced during uh, civil smoking and health litigations uh, litigation uh, in the U.S. Uh, those 14 million documents at the tobacco archives prove that Exxon is right. Oil is not the new tobacco, but six decades ago, tobacco was the new oil. Wait, what? Yes, according to Raynard Loki at uh, at Alternet this week. A recent analysis of more than 100 fossil fuel industry documents conducted by the Center for International Environmental Law, known as CL, a Washington, uh, D.C.-based advocacy group, has, received, has revealed I'm sorry, that the oil industry knew of the risks its business posed to the global climate decades before originally suspected. It has long been assumed that in, in its efforts to deceive investors and the public about the negative impact its business has on the environment, Big Oil borrowed Big Tobacco's so-called tactical playbook. But these documents indicate that the infamous playbook appears to have actually originated with the oil industry itself. Huh? What the hell? Here to explain what the hell is Carol Muffet. Uh, Carol is president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law, a nonprofit organization that uses the power of law to protect the environment, promote human rights, and ensure a just and sustainable society. 
He's also the adjunct associate professor of law at American University's Washington College of Law. Carroll previously served as executive director of the Climate Law and Policy Project at Greenpeace USA and is the co-editor of the book Governance, Natural Resources and Post-Conflict Peacebuilding. Carol Muffet, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. It's very nice to be here. Uh, great to have you here. All right. So over the past year, it has come to light. We've been covering it on on this uh, on the broadcast. Uh, thanks to investigative work from the folks at Inside Climate News and even the L.A. Times that Exxon scientists and executives knew full well about the dangers of burning carbon uh, into the atmosphere as early as the 1970s, according to internal company documents. But uh, and, and then, of course, the company began a well-funded disinformation campaign by funding climate science denial and so forth, trying to muddy the water on the issues and confuse the public to prevent any uh, you know, legislation that might help keep them from destroying the planet. Now, we're also familiar with the evidence suggesting that big oil has been using that same playbook uh, as big tobacco to try to muddy the, uh, the waters out there. But now, according to your investigation by your group, the Center for International Environmental Law, this entire story goes back much, much further than the tobacco fight and even the 1970s confirmation by Exxon that burning fossil fuels is killing the planet. So uh, do I understand this correctly? This goes back decades to like the late 40s and, and 50s before uh, even big tobacco started using this, uh, this scam? That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, the, the findings were, in fact, surprising even to us. What we set out to, to understand mm -hmm. was, given that, given that you had high-level political officials in the United States talking about, talking about climate change as early, certainly as the 1960s, we set out to determine, well, what, what reasonable oil company executive wouldn't know about climate issues at the point where they're be being discussed by presidents and members of Congress. Mm -hmm. And what we found was, in fact, the oil industry was fully aware of these issues, and their awareness goes back decades earlier than anybody understood or really imagined. I think the most powerful evidence that we found you know, demonstrated that by the 1950s, mm -hmm. um, Humble Oil, which is now ExxonMobil, was actually publishing climate research and engaging you know, engaging in debates on what was at the time the absolute cutting edge of climate science. Um, but what was much more, uh, you know, in, by 1968, the American Petroleum Institute was being warned by its own consultants at the Stanford Research Institute that the risks of climate change were real, that they were substantial, and that the best fit to the science was, was uh, that greenhouse gases were coming from the combustion of fossil fuels. No. What, was really, what was really important about the Stanford Research Institute paper is that, you know, this is the industry's own consultants warning them of this and really saying that the science here is longstanding and it's clear and what you should really be focusing on is technologies to reduce emissions. Um, that that's significant enough in its own right mm -hmm. but but the the more troubling aspect of what we found is that much of this research that was being done was being undertaken in the context of what the oil industry had created in the late 1940s 
called the Smoke and Fumes Committee. Right. I wanted to ask you about. Actually, I want to ask you about that. What the Smoke and Fumes Com- Committee was, and were they looking uh, at, at the time? And we're talking about, I guess, the '40s and the '50s and the '60s. Were they actually looking at the effect of carbon on the atmosphere, or was it more a focus on things like smog and lead in the atmosphere and so forth? Going back that far. Well, and this is what's interesting is, and this this is what will ultimately bring us back to the tobacco playbook. Mm-hmm. The Smoke and Fumes Committee began; it had its genesis in the oil industry's efforts to respond to bad press and bad science, um, and the risk of regulations resulting from the L.A. smog crisis of the late 1940s and Mm -hmm. early 1950s. And so in late 1946, a group of oil industry executives came together and decided that they needed to create a joint effort to fund pollution science and then combine that pollution science with an active PR effort that was designed to shape the public's opinion about the science related to environmental issues and air pollution issues. Um, for, the, for anybody who's followed the climate debate, that will sound very familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the smog context, or in, you know, in the smoke and fumes context, mm-hmm. it started with smog, but the industry very quickly realized that there were a whole host of pollutants that it wanted to add, it, add to its analysis and add to its agenda. And what we were able to document is that by no later than 1958, um, climate change was actually one of those items on the industry's agenda. We have reports from industry executives themselves talking about the American Petroleum Institute through this smoke and fund fumes committee funding research into climate change in 1958. Was the big tobacco, was big tobacco a part of that uh, smoke and fumes effort, or was that the oil industry at first that, that, that began that? The, it was the oil industry that began the smoke and fumes mm-hmm. campaign and the smoke and fumes committee. But what we found, you know, as we began to understand how far back the oil industries work on climate change and work on the links between public relations and science went, you know, a natural question arose. Well, what were the links between what the oil companies were doing and what the tobacco companies were doing? Mm-hmm. And so about 10 months ago, we began looking into the tobacco industry archive, which, as you said, is more than 14 million documents that have come out of decades of, of mm-hmm. tobacco litigation. And the really valuable thing about the documents in this archive is that they were never intended to be public. They, these were internal industry documents mm. that you know the the, in, the companies always assumed would be confidential, mm-hmm. and what we found in these documents is evidence over and over and over again that the tobacco companies themselves, when they were looking at how to develop their own their own deceptions can, deception campaigns around around smoking, mm-hmm. looked again and again and again to the oil industry for people for models and even for advice. Mm. And and that was, you've got, for example, a meeting in December of 1953. Tobacco executives meet in New York in a hotel room, uh, and they end up uh, crafting a plan uh, turning to the PR firm for Big Oil, who had been working on this, uh, uh, you know, to 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 avoid uh, exposure of what their the da- the damage that their industry was doing. They went to the same PR firm, Hill and Knowlton, and uh, actually the same guy, the principal architect, a guy by the name of Richard Darrow, principal architect of uh, Tobacco Strategy. 
He also represented Hill and Knowlton's biggest oil company clients. So this goes back. You you point out, uh, Carol Muffet, in um, the uh, one of the press releases that CL put out that the oil companies were testing cigarette smoke for toxins as early as the 1950s, including in partnership with research funded by the tobacco industry. Why? Were the oil companies and tobacco uh, industries actually working together at that point on on tobacco? What interest did oil have practically in in tobacco and in cigarette smoking? Well, this is a question that it took a lot of research to answer. Uh, we were stunned when we found that the oil companies, you know, were not simply talking with. The, the tobacco companies and, and developing shared marketing strategies and shared ad campaigns, but were actually testing the cigarettes. And there were at least two separate reasons for doing that. Um, one is one is that in at least one case in 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 the 1950s, mm-hmm. the the oil company labs were testing the cigarettes for the tobacco companies in research that was being funded by the tobacco. The, companies themselves, um, and the researchers were at NYU, Mm -hmm. why the oil companies would be doing this in this particular case is unclear. Mm -hmm. What is clear is they they certainly had market incentives to do so, and nowhere is that clearer in the fact than in the fact that the oil companies also went on to begin patenting cigarette filters and enter into joint marketing agreements with the tobacco companies for uh, for a variety of cigarette filters. Um, and they would then in turn do cigarette testing with those oil company produced cigarette filters. Wow. And so the, the links between the industries were far more extensive than we ever anticipated. And uh, Loki, uh, Raynard Loki over at Alternate reporting on your work says, suffice to say, CL's analysis has uncovered the deep and complex, re- complex relationship between the oil and tobacco industries that goes back many decades and continues to this day. Really? It continues to this day? How does the relationship between big tobacco and big oil continue even now, as as you see it, Carol? Well, I'll, let me begin by saying that, you know, our research focused, our research focused on the deep history of mm-hmm. the relationship between these companies, in part because the, the continue, the, the parallels between how they have operated, um, you know, since the 1980s on, have been really well documented in research, you know, in books by researchers like Naomi Oreskes mm-hmm. with Merchants of Doubt, um, and and in work that's been done by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And so this, you know, the the fact that the oil industry was using the same PR firms, the same you know, the same scientists that mm-hmm. the tobacco industry had been using in the 80s is actually really well documented, you know, in, in the ensuing period. I think what was truly novel in what we found was that it's not that oil is the new tobacco, but in fact that that mm-hmm. tobacco was at one time the new oil. If you look at researchers like the Stanford Research Institute, mm-hmm. which I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, this was an institute that actually the oil companies played a seminal role in getting established and funding during its early years, and they were responsible for you know, the majority of its contracts during their early years. And Stanford Research Institute was instrumental in the oil industry, industry's campaign against smog and smog regulation. Mm-hmm. We actually have letters from, from executives at the tobacco companies 
not only talking about making use of Stanford Research Institute, but saying, well, Stanford Research Institute is good enough for Shell, and if they're good enough for Shell, they're good enough for us. Um, we, there's one of, the key, one of the key scientists for the tobacco conspiracy for more than two decades was a man named Theodore Sterling. Mm-hmm. And Theodore Sterling wasn't a, wasn't a medical doctor. He was a statistician and a mathematician. And part of what made him so valuable to the tobacco companies was he developed statistical arguments for why no amount of evidence, no amount of epidemiological evidence, medical evidence, was ever going to be sufficient to prove a causal link between smoking and cancer. Mm. And the really powerful thing that we found in our research is that before he brought these arguments and these strategies to tobacco, Theodore Sterling was first using them uh, for the oil companies to argue that lead was not a was wow. not a public health risk. Wow. So no matter what the evidence is, we've got a way to inject doubt in response to it to say that oh no it's 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 just statistics that it's not proof uh fascinating now if this relationship uh you are uh, carol muffet after all the president and ceo of the center for international environmental law so if this relationship uh going back decades i i want to get to why this matters so if, if it's brought into the current investigations and potentially uh, litigation that's now being pursued by more than a dozen states' attorneys uh, general around the country, I think up to 16 or 17 now. How does this newly emerging relationship or evidence of this newly emerging, uh, of, of this old relationship now newly emerging, how does this change the playing field and potentially the courtroom, I guess, for big oil from what we had already known? From, from the knowledge we already had about the uh, dangerous effects of their product on the planet and the fact that they knew about it as early as the 70s. What more, how does this change that, uh, that playing field, Carol? I think this research changes the playing field in a few very important ways. First, it demonstrates that the oil companies were on notice about the potential climate risks from their products decades earlier than anyone suspected and that they were uniquely uniquely positioned to understand those risks. And this is important because when a court, when a judge takes a look at at a product's liability case, for example, mm-hmm. um, it holds the producer of a product to an expert standard. They assume that if you're bringing a product to market, you're an expert in every aspect of, of that product. And what our research demonstrates is that that is exactly the case, that the oil companies were early experts in every aspect of their products, including the climate risks of those products. And that means that they were on notice and they had an opportunity to correct the problem decades sooner than they actually did. Mm. And what they chose to do instead was actively support misinformation efforts that misled large segments of the public about the intrinsic risks of their products. Um, And I think from a legal perspective, that itself is very significant. The next thing that is significant is that the the tobacco industry archives are valuable precisely because they are public. I think one of the really powerful things in our research, both in this latest body of research and the earlier documents that we brought to light, is that these documents that are in the pu- these are documents that are in the public light. Mm-hmm. The industry can't control them and can't control access to them. Mm-hmm. And what that means is they help us understand 
who was involved, what the timelines were. They give us names. They give us committees. They give us you know, time frames and relationships. And all of those things are very powerful both in formulating investigative requests and discovery requests to the oil companies and their allies, and also in evaluating how, you know, how honestly they've been in producing documents that respond to requests. Mm. And so I think in that sense, it gives us a whole body of new tools and also, I think, also gives us a whole new set of resources in these online databases and in these online archives that are vast and largely untapped. The final point that I would make, and I think this is, you know, a, a very important one, is that, you know, for years the oil industry has dismissed arguments that that it was doing it, that it was involved in any sort of deception, that it was that it was doing anything, you know, that it knew anything that anybody else didn't know. Um, the tobacco industry is the very poster child for corporate fraud. It is the very poster child child for public deception on a massive scale. And nobody can argue anymore that the tobacco industry engaged in fraud on a massive scale. What we can now show is that the tobacco industry learned many of the tools, learned many of the strategies, and got many of its people from the oil companies themselves. And I think that throws a really stark light on how the oil companies have operated for a very long time. Now, ExxonMobil has been going on the offensive uh, against these uh, ongoing investigations now by various attorneys general. They have been suing to block some of the AG's uh, probes, charging that uh, the investigation violates ExxonMobil's constitutional First Amendment rights to, I guess, lie to the public. Uh, what, what is your response to, uh, to, the, to that argument? And didn't the uh, case against Big Tobacco already set the precedent that companies do not have a First Amendment right to defraud the public? That is exactly right. And I think, the, I think we've seen that in the very strong answers that have come back from the New York Attorney General, from the Massachusetts Attorney General, who have said exactly that. You know, the Constitution does not give you, a, give you the right to commit fraud. Um, and unfortunately, I think the law on this is very, very clear. I think what's even more important to recognize, however, is the intensity with which Exxon and other oil companies are going after these investigations and going after the, the very nonprofits that have been supporting the work and bringing the truth to light demonstrates how serious the risk is and how much they, how they now recognize that risk. Which... For a long time, for, for years and yeah. years... You know, Exxon was able to dismiss allegations like this as simple conspiracy theories from fringe groups. Mm-hmm. Well, but when you've got stories running in Inside Climate News and in the Los Angeles Times, you know those aren't fringe outlets. Um, when you when you get when you get inquiries being made from Congress, those aren't fringe outlets. And certainly, when you get attorneys general launching investigations, I think the oil industry's ability to say, "Look, this is just a bunch of left-wing lunatics," um, vanishes. And nowhere is that clearer than in a series of leaked emails that the Smog Blog ran earlier this year that demonstrated that oil company defense firms, the, the, you know, the top-flight, very expensive law mm-hmm. firms that routinely defend these companies, were sending out letters to their oil industry clients saying, this risk is 
real. It's Exxon first, but they won't be the last. Mm-hmm. You need to take this seriously. And, and well, yeah, actually, Len, let me get to uh, one point where. The industry does seem to be taking it seriously in the name of their uh, or, or at least by the hand of, you know, one of their greatest allies, Republicans in Congress. Republican Congressman Lamar Smith of Texas. He's chair of the U.S. House Science Committee. He's a a great climate science denier. Uh, he has subpoenaed, as I understand it, emails uh, between Uh, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman and environmental groups, as well as uh, Massachusetts Attorney General Marsha Healy and some of those same groups. That seems to be an unprecedented intrusion into the state AG's investigative and and prosecutorial power. At least it seems like that to me. Uh, You know, what is your what is Congressman Smith after there? What is he trying to do? And is this, in fact, as unprecedented as it seems to, uh, you know, to go into an investigation like this and demand uh, emails between the parties in this investigation. It is completely unprecedented from a constitutional perspective, from a perspective of, 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 of the balance of responsibilities between state prosecutors and Congress. It's, it's completely unprecedented in, in you know, from from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's not um, unprecedented from the perspective of Lamar Smith, who hands out climate subpoenas like they're candy. <laughs> yes. um, and, and, so, and so it is absolutely, uh, you know, it is absolutely baseless. And I think what we've seen in the responses from the New York Attorney General, from the Massachusetts Attorney General, and indeed from many of the NGOs that have also been subpoenaed, is that they are putting, you know, putting the the house science committee to its proof and saying you know if you want to if you want to if you want to take this to a house vote um to try to force a subpoena we will you know you know, you should try try to do that but we're going to aggressively defend our rights to bring the truth to light and that's ultimately what this agenda is about and what what i think you know lamar smith and other other oil industry allies in congress are trying trying to achieve they're, you know, they're use, ironically they're using First Amendment arguments to try to stop the truth from coming to light, to try and intimidate and coerce those who would who would bring more information out into the open. And and then I mean it is ironic because in one sense Exxon Mobil is saying, hey, we had a First Amendment right to say whatever we want to say, and then here they are in Congress trying to intrude upon uh, you know Attorney General investigations uh, and and the right of the the First Amendment rights of environmental groups to. Uh, to, I guess, help with that investigation. I mean, just to be clear, you're an attorney. I'm not. Uh, There is nothing illegal or inappropriate or improper about uh, environmental groups here helping to inform attorney general investigations, right? If, in fact, that is happening, that's completely appropriate, is it not? What I've heard from many of the organizations that have received the subpoenas is that they are happy to go and share with the House Science Committee, you know, the the same information that they've shared with attorneys general mm-hmm. and i you know, i can say the same is true for cl i am happy to share the information that we've found with literally anyone who's who will listen to it because that is that's a key part of our job and a key part of our, our role is to bring this information out into the light so it can be addressed you know so it can be addressed and and the parties that are involved 
can be held accountable. I think that is, you know, part and parcel of of the mission of these organ of these organizations. And there's nothing at all inappropriate about sharing sharing the results of investigations with uh, with investigators. It's a remarkable story, yeah. And Lamar Smith, I mean, Lamar Smith went after the uh, NOAA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, claiming that somehow the scientists there were changing their temperature data to try to hoax us all to believe in uh, into believing in in, in global warming. Uh, I mean, and I think he's still doing. How, how did that unprecedented intrusion into science work out for the uh, for the Republicans? Have they in fact been able to? Uh, to get evidence uh, of this great hoax that NOAA is pulling off in their in their temperature data, what they've been able to do is to make life very difficult and very uncertain for a lot of scientists who've been working very hard to do good, solid science mm-hmm. and and bring information to public light. And I think, regardless of the outcomes of the subpoenas, one consequence of them is that they are very effective or can be very effective as a tool for for intimidation and suppression yeah. and i think this is the true you know this is the true this is what's deeply regrettable in what what the house science committee is doing in the name of fulfilling their science mandate in the in the name of moving science forward they are actually working to suppress science it, it really, it is just remarkable. And so I'm so delighted that there are folks uh, like you and the folks at the Center for International Environmental Law uh, looking into this, looking into the public records. I think it was I.F. Stone, uh, the great American uh, investigative journalist, who said everything you need to know is already on the public record. And I suspect you've got a lot more uh, documents to look through out of that uh, 14 million document archive in the uh, in the uh, the tobacco archives. It's fascinating and important important work. I thank you very much for doing it. Uh, and I'll just uh, close with uh, Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org, who said about uh, the recent discoveries uh, that CL has made. We've had a year to get used to the idea that big oil acted like big tobacco with the same cavalier disregard for anything but profit. Now comes the revelation that big oil was big tobacco. It's like a comic book league of supervillains, except not very funny, says Bill McKibben. Uh, Carol Muffett, great work. I, I would urge people to check out the work at uh, at smokeandfumes.org. Is that correct? Is that the website? Yeah. That's correct. Smokeandfumes.org and at cl.org. That's C-I-E-L.org. And, of course, on the Twitters at CL underscore tweets. Carol Muffett, uh, president of the Center for International Environmental Law. Great talking to you uh, today. Really appreciate it. Hope you'll come back and uh, share more of the investigation as it moves forward. Thanks so much, Brad. You bet. Thank you. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more broadcast right after this. Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, and uh, yes, some Donald Trump is in it. You've been warned. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the broadcast. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As ever, melting 
with and for Desi Doyen or something like that. <laughs> something uh, like that. Yeah, all right. Uh, trying to keep our uh, eyes on the substance. So let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. Those regulations will be eliminated quickly. Donald Trump's new energy plan, same as the old plan. I'm excited because there are lots of examples of what's working. Hillary Clinton calls for helping coal country transition to new industries. Out-of-work coal miners now working to restore abandoned coal mines. Industrial chemicals found in drinking water of 6 million Americans. Plus, court ruling sets major precedent for climate change accountability. All of that accountability and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It will be... American hands that rebuild this country. Tiny, tiny little American hands. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it was nice during the primaries to somewhat be able to ignore Donald Trump, but now he's the nominee. Now I guess we got to pay attention to what he's actually saying. Yes, 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 we do. Sorry. (laughs) Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump pledged a new energy plan for America, but it turns out to be standard Republican Party energy policy. More oil, more coal, and a repeal of environmental regulations. Now, it is an established fact that U.S. energy production is booming, with record domestic oil and gas production and record renewable energy generation and job creation. But in a speech at the Detroit Economic Club on Monday, Trump claimed the exact opposite. The Obama-Clinton administration has blocked and destroyed millions of jobs through their anti-energy regulations while raising the price of electricity for both families and businesses. And that's, of course, also false. U.S. electricity rates have remained stable after surging nearly 50% during the Bush administration, according to the Washington Post. Renewable energy is the nation's fastest-growing job sector, and Trump's plan to repeal environmental regulations will increase public health care costs caused by pollution, and increasing fossil fuel use will lock in dangerous climate change. In a recent interview with Pittsburgh's KDKA, the Democratic presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton, reiterated her policy to assist coal country in transitioning away from coal. We're going to revitalize coal country. Towns that have been really knocked flat, we're going to help them get up. We can do that with infrastructure, advanced manufacturing. We can do that with clean energy. Also this week, two former EPA administrators who served in Republican administrations have endorsed Secretary Clinton for president. Bill Ruckel's house of the Nixon administration and the first EPA administrator in a joint statement with William Riley of the George H.W. Bush administration wrote that Trump shows, quote, a profound ignorance of science and of the public health issues embodied in our environmental laws and that Clinton is, quote, committed to reasonable science based policy. So the Nixon administrator and the George Bush senior administrator both love Hillary Clinton. Yep. Okie dokie. 
Meanwhile, as coal use continues to decline around the world, the Obama administration Interior Department broke ground on the first of 14 federally funded coal mine reclamation projects in Pennsylvania. The pilot projects employed laid-off coal miners to clean up toxic mine waste at abandoned coal mines, rehabilitate blighted land, and restore polluted streams. The Obama administration has asked the Republican-controlled Congress to release additional funding from the abandoned mine Mine Lands Fund to accelerate mine reclamation and employ out-of-work miners. They should have asked them to not release it. Then maybe they would have. There you go. A new study of U.S. drinking water systems has found unsafe levels of a class of widely used but unregulated industrial chemicals that have been linked to potentially serious health problems, and they found it in the drinking water of 6 million Americans. According to researchers at Harvard University, quote, virtually all Americans are exposed to these compounds, which never break down once they're released into the environment. Finally, it will now be a little bit harder for industries to block new regulations by federal agencies, such as the EPA and the Energy Department. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld the Energy Department's authority to calculate environmental impacts from climate change when it's creating new energy efficiency standards. In rejecting a lawsuit brought by refrigerator manufacturers to stop new standards, the court's ruling set a huge precedent. It upheld a formula for calculating climate change impacts called the social cost of carbon. That's the estimate of the cost that society bears for damage to the environment and to public health caused by fossil fuel pollution and climate change. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It makes it more difficult for industries to stop new emissions regulations. Oh, they'll keep trying. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, Yep. our producer, of course, uh, and thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it at bradblog.com for free, or go on over to iTunes, where you can also subscribe for free, and give us good review while you're there. Make it easier for everyone else in the world to find it as well. Uh, my thanks also to our guest today, Carol Muffett of the Center for International Environmental Law. And to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do each and every day. Trying to figure this out as we go. A crazy year. You can also find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey.